We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna. Nate has earned the right. Um, thought his total body of work all the way back uh, from from the spring through the summer and fall camp to this point um, he, he is certainly on the right I believe he's a resilient young man um, you know he's certainly um, come through some times of adversity through throughout his career so you know I've been impressed with his with his mental toughness uh, his his command of the offense uh, the way he's generated Yards and then and then points in, in the preseason. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rockpile Report podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder Drew Gear. That's my producer Chris Krueger, and that was Coach Ambien from his Monday press conference over at BuffaloBills.com. It's here, folks. It's finally here. The NFL is back. That's right. We can't have anyone freak out out there, okay? We've got to keep our composure. We've come too far. There's too much to lose. We've got to just keep our composure. Oh, Chris. I'm already up 2-1 on Beer Watch. <laughs> I've got two down. I'm working my third. You this is the only time I'll ever have this lead. You are getting into the spirit of things. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's finally here. I mean, it, oh, the 2018 season. When summer started, I'm sorry, but there's like a no man's land where there's nothing around but baseball. And everyone who listens to this podcast knows I, I can't. I, I can't stand watching baseball. I can watch baseball, but watching regular season baseball in July is a, is a little tough. It, a little tough? That's like saying a well-done steak is just a little tough. Jesus. So you can understand. I, I mean, ugh, I, I, even with the reservations I have about the Bills this season, I am absolutely foaming at the mouth for this. I mean, Chris, got Sundays with friends, food. Enough beer to drown a steer, sir. We are on. T- I'm on. I'm on cloud nine right now. I'm. I'm wondering what it's going to be like if 
Remember when Shane Gailey was a head coach and we played the Jets week one and they scored 53 on us? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'd like to see something that happened to us on Sunday. Just, just from the standpoint of me watching you watch the Bills light up 53. You can bring all your negativity, negativity and your sass over here, jerk off, but guess what? I, you can't phase me. You can't bring me down, all right? I, I'm, I'm, I just, I, I mean, I'm basking in football euphoria. Okay, I know that this isn't exactly what Marv meant when he, when he asked the Bills the question, "Where would you rather be than right here, right now?" But I can tell you, nowhere. Sitting here doing a podcast, beer in my hand. Tomorrow night, the Falcons and Eagles are going to kick off in Philly, and that starts the beginning of the the official beginning of the NFL season for 2018. Chris. Cheers me, you bastard. Football is back. And with that, we'll launch right into this week's Bills News Update. A.J. McCarron traded in a preemptive move to name Peterman the starter. You know what I have written out on the board? My whiteboard out there? You know what it says out there? What does it say? Uh, Paul Wineski from Hashtag Sports. A.J. McCarron starts and finishes the season as the Bills starter. Seagram's bet. <laughs> Hilarious. Oh, so where were you, Chris, when you got the news that A.J. McCarron had been traded? Jesus, if I was anywhere, I might have been here drinking alone. I Honestly, I don't know where or when it happened. I was in the middle of a fantasy football draft, and we were probably... I mean, I had to run the computer. You know, I'm in charge of things. There's a lot of people sitting around in my house as we're doing this. We're in the swing of it. And somebody announces, oh, hey, by the way, we all got to remember to change our sheets because uh, A.J. McCarron is now a member. You know, A.J. McCarron got traded to the Raiders, remember? And I remember looking at my sheet, then looking at the computer, and then all of a sudden just standing up and asking, what the hell are you people talking about? A.J. McCarron being traded. What? Folks, that's what happens when you buy a house. You go into this bubble where everything happening around you just ceases to matter. So I'm finding out in the middle of a fantasy draft that the guy that everyone, myself included, thought would be named the starter heading into the season wasn't even on the friggin' roster anymore. Now, I mean, you could take a look at what we got back. A fifth-round pick. That's not nothing. I mean, it... it, But... But the logic behind a move like that, Chris. Well, the Raiders do like to give away picks. I mean, they did trade a third to Pittsburgh for uh, Martavius Bryant. Yeah, and since they cut him, Bills fans had to feel pretty good about the whole uh, Corey, uh, Corey Coleman situation. But you won't. You won't because you guys love to complain about things. <laughs> so now we go. Remember, Chris, a few weeks ago? It feels like forever ago, but it was just a month ago that you and I sat here at this table and made fun of Michael Robinson from NFL Network for even even just having the opinion. Yeah, because he's had some great uh, Bill's opinions over the last couple of years. Having the he op- said Peterman. Having the opinion that Nathan Peterman would end up as our starter, and now I'm sitting here feeling like a horse's ass. I mean, that's just... I, well, I, I mean, come on. How did I not see this coming? Our offensive line... Let Nathan Peterman be named the starter because that's let's be honest. That Cincinnati game is what led to Josh Allen being uh, riding pine on the bench. And as you guys and as you guys can guess, the national media had a field day with it. I mean, the 
everybody, everybody and their mother had an opinion. You know, I think it was Pat McAfee tweeted out the uh, the the meme of the uh, African American gentleman pointing to his head as if he's smarter than you with the hey. You don't need a punter if you start a quarterback who just turns the ball over all the time. <laughs> and that, that is a smart move. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Adam Rank from NFL, uh, NFL Network. The Bills will start Nathan Peterman. It's like trying to justify a late-night hookup by making them your significant other. Oh, I've done that, and I've married them. Yahoo Sports tweets out, Nathan Peterman once threw five interceptions in one half, and now he's the Bills' starting quarterback with a crying emoji. And trust me, the heat was real here amongst just Bills fans. I w- hey, I, was, I, was, I, I don't think I sent you this one, but I took a couple of screenshots from Twitter, and somebody tweeted at the Bills, uh, at another Brian C., cut A.J. McCarron and hire Colin Kaepernick. Jesus, this is where we've landed. real real tweets from real people. I mean, this is where we've landed. But this is what Peterman himself had to say earlier this week when asked about being a starter. You know, like I said about the goal, you know, of this camp, it's been the same, you know, for my whole life. I've had a goal to play in the NFL to be a starter. And, um, you know, I think maybe that's what people, you know, don't understand sometimes is that, you know, when you have obstacles, hard things in your life, I mean, that doesn't mean you should quit, you know. And uh, maybe that's the way some people think, but that's not the way I think. And, uh, you know, for me, it just amps me up even more um, and, and gives me, you know, a lot of desire and a lot of, um, yeah, drive to, to go accomplish those goals. That was Nathan Peterman from his uh, press conference on Monday, BuffaloBills.com. I mean, everybody's doubting him based on that Charger game last year. I mean, Well, that's it. He has one one half of football under his belt and everybody's made up their mind on the guy. And I, I once, once you sit back and you really think about it and you get, okay, you watch, it's like once you watch the Hindenburg happen and then you sit back and try to reason with it and say, okay, well, it's done. You can't undo it. So where do we go from here? Uh, at the Joe Marino tweeted out something that I thought, thought was really interesting. And I, I took a screenshot of Joe Marino of the draft network. The Bills choosing Nathan Peterman as QB1 to start the season is the right move. He's been the best quarterback this preseason, and trotting out Josh Allen to face the Ravens, Chargers, and Vikings defenses in his first three NFL games is not ideal, especially with Buffalo's supporting cast on offense. Chris, the thing you just said about A.J. AJ McCarron, the offensive line essentially making Peterman the starter, is the exact reason why he's here. Why he's in the position he's in. Because... You can't throw a kid like Allen to the Wolves like that. And at the same time, you've got A.J. McCarron who had trade value. Some team wanted him. I don't know why any team would want him after that performance against the Bears. He was like 8 of 26. <laughs> here's, here's what I know. We're here now. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, the Buffalo Bills clearly aren't content to go into the season with three quarterbacks. I mean, they've at least kicked the tires on some guys, albeit Paxton Lynch, formerly of the, the Denver Broncos. I mean, folks, when I was trying to put together my show notes for tonight, I fell asleep last night trying to get everything together. And the only thing I had written underneath this entire topic was Paxton Lynch can take his man bun and get the fuck out of my city. 
That's yep. it. That's all I have. Yeah, that, he, that's my in-depth analysis. He shouldn't be in the league. He shouldn't be in the league. He's he, terrible. I don't care. Maybe he's not terrible. Maybe someday he'll develop into a competent quarterback. But it's not going to be here, and it's not going to happen with that hair. All right? So get out of here. Since we're talking about the roster, Chris, it's a good segue into our next topic. The 53-man roster. Okay? What's good? What's concerning? And what has us scratching our heads? Now, on Saturday, the moves came in. Everything was pretty much done. And there were some out there that really just left people questioning things. And I think that's where I want to start. There were some surprises involved with the cutdown process. I mean, first and foremost, tight end uh, Nick Baby Hands O'Leary. I'm sad. A lot of people were surprised by this. I wasn't one of them, but I do want to talk about it. The tight end group, when you take a look at what their what their makeup is, I think the problem for O'Leary is that he's one of those guys who just didn't have he didn't have anything more special than any of the other guys around him. He was a decent he was a decent pass catching target, but there was a guy who could do it better. He was a decent run blocking you know a blocker on the line, but there was a bigger guy who could do it better. And then there was just, even just being mediocre at the two at the same time, there was a bigger, more physical player who could do it, if not at the same level, a little bit better and also be six foot six and 260 pounds. I'm just upset that we can't, I don't have anybody to call baby hands anymore. It's like when we cut Duke Williams a couple of years ago. I couldn't play Val Venus's theme song on the podcast anymore. <laughs> I won't, now I'm not going to be able to call Nick O'Leary baby hands with his fucking no glove attitude. Listen, somebody will come along and you'll be able to give them another uh, another ridiculous nickname. Next on this list is uh, Colt Colton Schmidt, punter. I mean, the guy was. I a, said it last week. The guy was around for a while, and I genuinely didn't want to believe that they would ever cut him. I mean, he's. He has not been the best punter. I do understand that. His, you know, his punts sometimes can be ugly. But as far as directional punting, he had pretty good accuracy on those. And that's something when you're asking, that's something you as a coach can game plan around. I mean, we've seen what happens when you punt the wrong direction of your coverage. And then it just leads to big gains made against you. And then you also have to factor in uh, punting here in Buffalo in November. In December, the weather's not that great. And I, I believe Sal Capaccio from uh, GR tweeted out that he was, like, second all-time in, like, uh, net yardage. Like, he averaged, like, 44.1 mm-hmm. yards per punt, and he was, like, second all-time in punt attempts. I mean, obviously, I mean, you play Cleveland enough, <laughs> you're going to get a lot of punts. I just, I, I don't get the timing of the move. I guess that's the thing that bothers me about this. Not the fact that he's gone. Oh, yeah, he got cut on Sunday. But the fact that you just cut him and now you're going to go into a game without the guy who's been punting for your team for the last three seasons. It's just, to me, it's, it's highly questionable. And then there's the move to cut wide receiver Corey Coleman. Now that move, Chris, caught a ton of flack from fans, members of the media, Everyone's pointing to the money that we have to eat. I think it's somewhere in the ballpark of about $3 million worth of cap space we lose with that acquisition. And the loss of a seventh-round draft pick, which is, again, dubious because it's a pick that, generally speaking, doesn't make the roster. Having said that, I I read GM Brandon Bean's explanation of it, and I'm not going to lie, it gave me a lot of respect for the guy. 
Let me read it to you here. This is from an article that Pro Football Talk wrote uh, about the subject. Bill's general manager, Brandon Bean, told Tim Graham of The Athletic that Coleman might not have had enough time to make a good impression, but clearly never made a good impression. This was his quote. You know, Corey, he tried hard. He really did. Where he came in to learn a new offense, he just didn't gel. It's one of those things you ask yourself. Have we given this enough time? The talent's there. Anybody that's been around the practice field, you see that he has a skill set. But we just never were able to make it mesh on the field with him, and it's a production business. People think, oh, GMs love to protect their draft picks. Well, if I'm protecting my draft picks, I gave a seventh-round pick for this guy and guaranteed some cash. You don't want to see that. But you've got to be true to who earned the spot. And we just felt in the limited time that we were still unsure if it was going to work. And to kick someone else out that we knew would work, or at least felt better about, we just didn't think that that was right. Chris, that's the way I want my GM to sound. Okay? I want my GM to come in here and say, look, if I made a mistake, I'm not also going to double down on that mistake. I'm not going to get another guy off this roster to make room for a guy who may never get it, who may never gel with the playbook, who may just not have a place on a starting offense in the NFL. Versus a guy who maybe could be developed or a guy who has a different skill set. Maybe he's bigger. Maybe he's more physical. Whatever the case may be. I mean, what did you think about all this? I mean, it's quite surprising you keep... uh, I I guess I would look at it as you kept Robert Foster over Corey Coleman. So I was like... I didn't see much from Foster during the uh, preseason. I would say a couple of... Times he alligator armed on a couple of deep balls, but I mean that's that's how what I would correlate it to. We cut Corey Coleman to give that roster spot to Robert Foster, which ultimately may not be the worst thing in the world. I mean, I've already seen people talking about, oh well, it's nepotism because his offensive coordinator was from Alabama and he's from Alabama, and what? It very well may be. You may be looking at a coordinator who's saying, look, I know that this guy fits my fits what I'm trying to do here. He just needs the time to get his chops up. He was an undrafted free agent, Chris. They're, they're works in progress. They can be. Yeah, plus he's been here the whole time, and mm-hmm. Corey Coleman got here, what, two and a half weeks ago? But if the coordinator is sold on this guy, or at least the idea of what he might develop into, then you know what? If that's the, if that's the case... And this is a staff that really does lean on its assistance and lean on what it can learn from the guys on the you know on the staff. That's why you hired them. Then, if that's the case, I'm not gonna look. I'm not gonna give this a second thought. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I trust that they're making the decision that they think is best because ultimately their jobs depend on it. Chris, that's it. Their jobs depend on being right on this kind of stuff. And like I said, I'm just I'm I'm happy to hear. Something come out of a Buffalo Bills GM's mouth that makes sense because I've spent so long not hearing anything like that. But folks, things aren't as bad as they seem. I mean, there are some great points about this roster, and I'm going to go over them with you. First of all, the good. Running back and fullback. You look at it. LaShawn McCoy, Chris Ivory, Marcus Murphy, Taiwan Jones, and Patrick DeMarco. I'm surprised you didn't start with Marcus Murphy first. I wanted to. Trust me, I wanted to. He's my favorite part of this entire group. They are the obvious workhorse of this roster. And I think the team did a good job just bringing in a really varied skill set of players. McCoy, he obviously does it all. 
You know, he's he's your inside guy, your outside guy. He's a receiver. He can run anywhere you need him to run. He's your big playmaker on this offense. He's the biggest playmaker for this team. Behind him, you've got Ivory, your short yardage kind of change of pace back. Usually when you say change of pace back, you mean a guy who is a scat back, who gets out into space. But because we have the luxury of a starter who already does that, our change of pace back is more of a battering ram. I mean, they tried it last year with Tolbert, but he wasn't athletic enough. Ivory is a better version of what they wanted from Tolbert. Plus, that's also going to put DeMarco on the field, I would assume, since he's a north-south runner. Exactly. I mean, DeMarco being here, that's going to help in situations where Ivory or another less freewheeling running back is brought into the game. I mean, think about it. LaShawn McCoy has been here for how many years, and they've tried different options at fullback in front of him. And it it didn't work. But that's because his running style, he ad-libs so much that it's hard to really block for the guy. That being said, with a guy like Ivory on the roster, DeMarco may actually make an impact as a blocker for the first time in his career here in Buffalo. I mean, that's that in and of itself is worth his weight in gold. On top of it, on passing downs, he's a solid backfield blocker and also provides a safety valve when circumstances may dictate that it's necessary. Marcus Murphy, obviously everybody knows that I've got a hard-on for the kid. He's young guy, never really got a shot. But he's kind of, he played a couple years with the Saints, and then he came here and he had that one big flash play in Miami. But since then, he's proven it's not a fluke. He's proven that he can run that way in the preseason. Now, I mean, I mean, and there's metrics, I get it. The stats don't matter. But yards after contact matters. Things like that. Watching his receiving yards and the number of receptions per game that he has, that, that matters. As a running back three, the thing I like most about Murphy is that he's a sub for McCoy and has special teams versatility. And then you've got Taiwan Jones, who's only here because Sean McDermott is some sort of, sort of I don't know, he's in love with the guy. And because he probably agreed to help do the team's laundry. And Chris, that better be the only reason he's here, because he's certainly not good at football. I mean, he had, he had, to, have, he had to have shown something on special teams. No, I'm telling you, it's, he proved that he's the only person who understands that the, the right blend of uh, OxyClean with Tide will get the stains out of anything. That's the only reason Taiwan Jones is on this roster. <laughs> also, the safety position. Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, Raphael Bush, and Saran Neal. My take is that the depth at this position is so much improved from last season's when the safety group was the backbone of the defense. Yeah, what happened to Bakari Rambo? <laughs> Listen, we drew first blood, okay? But ultimately, he couldn't. He just wasn't a fit. He's not. And, he, and judging from the fact that I haven't heard his name thrown around at all this preseason, he's still not. He's a guy whose time has passed him. The thing is, we got deeper than we were last season, which considering the questions we have across the secondary, that's a huge boon for the defense. Bush and Neal are going to give this safety group the versatility and athleticism to run things, Chris, like the big nickel package, which we couldn't run last year because we didn't have enough bodies to do it. 
which is essentially taking an extra safety, putting him on the field in lieu of a slot cornerback when teams forced to go to a nickel formation. Chris, that was when the Bills were at their most productive last year on defense, was when they were able to play nickel defense and do it well. So it makes sense that they would want to bolster this position, and I, I look at that as being one of the strengths that's going to help us down the stretch this year. And then the group that I'm probably the highest on, which sounds crazy considering who they are, the tight ends. Charles Clay, Jason Kroom, Logan Thomas, and Kari Lee. They might be my favorite part of the roster. Last week, I said that this could be a distinct possibility based on what we've seen out of the wide receiver core. I mean, the team keeping four tight ends, that's not a normal thing, Chris. Teams don't just do that. I guess they're going to be lined up and pulling and blocking and... You know, getting helping Shady get in space. Well, that's that... it. I mean, I mean, the, the good news is there's true versatility here out of this group that if you can utilize them creatively, can help the team on so many different fronts. First of all, in terms of skill set, I mean, you've got you've got Charles Clay. He's your Swiss Army knife. He can do a little bit of everything well enough to be considered a starter on what I think is all but five or six teams in the NFL much less the Buffalo Bills. He, his, you can go to ESPN and find all the different reports about his, you know, as far as fantasy football goes. They'll tell you how good he is in terms of targets per game. Yeah, he's integrated himself into this offense. He's, he's essentially, Chris, whether we like it or not, a wide receiver too, playing tight end. He's proven that he can be part of the passing attack. He's proven he can block well enough in the run game to maintain tight end one status and still get all that playing time. Kroom is interesting because he's a former wide receiver. So he's a little more polished in his route running. His blocking at times leaves something to be desired. But that's what happens when you take a kid who's a tall, tall wide receiver and tell him to gain... 35 pounds, and then move inside to the formation. You're asking for trouble because this guy's used to, he's used to blocking guys who are 190 pounds, not 290. That With that, though, he just he, you've seen him make flash plays in the preseason. He gets downfield quickly. Because his wide receiver roots, he's able to get out in space. He's used to having a route tree. And he runs it, which is uncommon for tight ends who weren't former receivers. It gives him a leg up, and it's part of the reason why Nick O'Leary isn't here anymore. Logan Thomas. Logan Thomas is a big body at six foot six and 250 pounds. You're talking about a learning curve. This guy used to be a quarterback. And he's moved to the NFL and essentially had to learn how to block for the first time in his entire career against NFL-caliber talent. And yet he's still here. Most guys would have washed out of the NFL by now. Chris, do you think... I'll put it into hockey terms for you. You play... Okay, you spell Reinhardt with no H. (laughs) You play hockey at a roller hockey level, and you do so pretty well. You Goddamn right. Usually lead team in uh, goals, points, assists. I can do that Michigan move. 
Just go to YouTube, look up Mike Leg, Michigan. It's the greatest move ever. I can do that. You're welcome. Okay, so you do that in roller hockey. If I threw you on the ice with a bunch of D1 hockey players, how quickly would it, how quickly would you get undressed um, by these guys? I, I, I don't think I would be as physical as I usually would because I know that these players are be- a better skill level than me and that I would need to fully utilize my mental capabilities of playing hockey. And even then, you still probably wouldn't be very good by comparison, right? I mean, let's let's hear you admit it. I could I could probably hang if I rely on my, oh, my mental God. ability. All right, folks, you just heard Chris say he can go from roller hockey to D1. What I'm trying to the point I'm trying to make here is that Logan Thomas has been learning how to play tight end on the fly. And that being said, in 2017, he was targeted nine times and caught seven of those targets for a 77% completion percentage. And throughout this preseason, had nine catches for 105 yards. For a big body guy who's hard to get past and who is learning how to block, he's also decent at catching the ball, and he's a solid athlete. And then you've got Kari Lee, another big body. 6'4", 253. Keeping him, he's the best blocker out of this group, just a natural blocker on the line. And he has just one career NFL catch outside of this roster. So clearly he's a stay-at-home, I'm going to anchor and just try not to let pass rushers around me tight, type tight end. If used creatively, this group has a varied enough skill set that they can impact every single game in multiple ways. They're athletic enough to help block on the edges and get, like you said earlier, LaShawn McCoy out in space. They all, I mean, the top three have passing passing game abilities. They can get out and catch the football and are at a minimum size mismatches for any linebacker or slot cornerback that you wanted to line up on them. I think if they're used appropriately, could be one of the most dynamic units on the offense short of the running back core. And I know that preseason stats, you can, again, I'm going to say it time and time again, most statistics you can throw away. But there's certain things you notice. One of the things I noticed about our tight ends is that every tight end on our roster had at least four catches and had at least a yards per catch average of 11. I thought you were going to say that they all wear gloves. No. A yards per catch average of at least 11, except for Clay, who's proven he can do that in the regular season. If Dable brings his A game in terms of game planning, this group could really be dynamic and help us, I don't know, kind of overcome some of the other deficiencies in this roster. Which brings me to the concerning parts of our football team. Chris, Is, I yeah, know I have a beer. You got to open another I'm one. I'm opening a second one for this. This is the... This is the part of the game where all four of our tight ends enter the game. Am I right? Oh, my God. Right? This is the point of the game where I want to make like an ostrich and bury my head in the sand. It starts off with the offensive line. We've got Deion Dawkins, Jordan Mills, Marshall Newhouse, Connor McDermott, John Miller, Vlad Dukas, Wyatt Teller, Russell Bodine, and Ryan Groy. And these are all real people that are real offensive linemen. Looking over the group, I mean, Chris, there's a reason that the Bills brass saw fit to keep two blocking tight ends. 
That's an NFL rarity. I blame our performance on the line. Through the preseason, the offensive line group showed a lot of inconsistency in terms of just the blocking, which Josh Allen found out the hard way. (laughs) They can't be trusted to win five on five, and they lose five on four sometimes just because of their own ineptitude. What would the over-under be of the offensive line being, as a whole, the zero of the, the week? I, I I don't even know. I think you're I think you're going to be there at least six times this year. When I look over this group, I'm ext- Chris. I'm I don't know how else to say it. I'm terrified. I'm not. It's oh. exciting for me to watch you watch football. Groy and Bodine accomplished nothing special. Neither one of them stood out as anything spectacular at center. Dawkins missed playing time at left tackle with a back injury. And when Marshall Newhouse stepped in for him, looked physically overmatched for the athleticism that players that start at left defensive end are going to bring to the table. Jordan Mills may or may not have been a just, just burning tire fire. I couldn't tell you, Chris, because John Miller was busy giving us his best impression of a friggin' supernova. I mean, I'm honestly shocked that nobody was killed or had third-degree burns in the process of standing that close to John Miller, trying to play right guard and just burning in the process. I mean, let's see here. Sunday's the Ravens, and then the Chargers, and then the Vikings, and then the Packers. Chris, the fact that this guy made the roster shows you how bad this situation really is. It's not a good start for our O-line this season through the first four games. I can't wait. I'm telling you, I cannot wait to watch you watch football. That's my favorite pastime, Chris. watching you watch football. Chris, it gets better. Our depth on the offensive line consists of unproven players like Connor McDermott, Wyatt Teller, and some jerk-off from the Bengals who couldn't be kept around any longer on their roster in Russ Bodine. Good, great, grand, wonderful. Over the years... Chris, I've watched quarterbacks like Andrew Luck, Phillip Rivers, even Aaron Rodgers have their production negatively impacted by subpar offensive line play. And those guys were all-stars. They're pro bowlers. The offensive line is the backbone of an offense. And our offense, along with Peterman, may all end up in back braces by the time week five or six rolls around. That's what we're looking at. This is incredible to me that we've ended up in this place where somehow this offensive line is allowed to trot out there on Sunday and try to pretend like they belong in the NFL. (laughs) Leave it to say that I'm going to be watching a lot of Sunday's game through my fingers, like my wife, whenever we're watching a movie where there's jump scares involved, Chris. Or when you Oh no, what's gonna happen? Oh, I know what's gonna happen. Terrell Suggs is gonna kill my quarterback. Or when you try to when she does that too, when you try to say the word miracle. It's miracle. No. Miracle. It's miracle. No, no, no. That was a goaltender for the Red Wings. Nor miracle. (laughs) Miracle. I hate you. There's an I I hate you. There's an I. Moving on! 
There's more disappointment to be had, folks. I just jump across to the opposite side of the football. The defensive line. Jerry Hughes, Trent Murphy, Shaq Lawson, and Eddie Yarbrough. Now, I guess one of the most striking things to me about the 2017 Buffalo Bills defense is that the the secondary proved that they were capable of forcing turnovers. And those turnovers went on to key a lot of our victories. I mean, you think about it. The Tampa Bay game doesn't happen without our secondary. The Atlanta win doesn't happen if Trey White doesn't scoop the ball and run into the end zone. And even then, both of those games were only won by a slim margin. Hell, the Kansas City game, only it's only a win because EJ Gaines stopped the Kansas City Chiefs while they were marching down the field to go win the game with a field goal. Like our offensive line, our front seven left a lot to be desired throughout camp in the preseason. And we opted to only keep four defensive ends and brought three members back from last year's team that sucked that badly because during that entire process, we were one of the worst teams in the NFL at creating pressure and ranked 29th in sacks. Uh, I'm just looking at your notes here. Uh, You say we kept four defensive end, yet I only see three. Jerry Hughes, Trent Murphy, Shaq Lawson, Eddie Yarbrough. Okay, I read that, and I just see Jerry Hughes, Shaq Lawson, Eddie Yarbrough. What has Trent Murphy done? <laughs> I'm just, what has he done? I'll tell you what he's done. Has he shown up? His health is one of the biggest concerns of this line. When he was healthy, Murphy showed with Washington that he had an ability to get after the passer. He was mostly used throughout his career on third down. See ya. Long seconds and third down. Those were when he saw his snaps. Coming in with the Buffalo Bills, they tried to make him a starting defensive end. A, it's a whole different scheme. He's coming from a 3-4 to a 4-3. He's not the prototype size you want for that role. And B, I don't know that he has the physical ability to get on a football field and impact a game right now. I mean, we've talked about it with our friend, uh, Dr. Kyle Trimble from bangedupbills.com, how these types of injuries that we've seen from Murphy throughout the preseason, that's indicative of a guy who has an injury that he's not 100% recovered from or just doesn't trust with the knee. He doesn't trust his knee. So he's still trying to make these fast twitch movements that he used to be able to do, except he's trying to do it without trusting the knee, which means he's going to use other muscles that aren't developed to handle that at this point, which is why you've seen groin injuries and hip injuries. And and if he's not ready, then we should shut him down for the start of the season, Chris. Shut him down. There is nothing to be gained from rushing. The only guy besides Jerry Hughes on this roster who can produce a pass rush There's no reason throwing him out there as one of four, as if he's going to start this week. He better not see the field until he is completely healthy. (sighs) I have no idea what to expect from this guy this year. Jerry Hughes is the only other proven commodity that we have at defensive end, and he's essentially a low-ceiling but decent floor starter at the NFL. Anybody else who thinks otherwise, you're, you're drunker than I am, okay? He's a product of the talent around him, illustrated by the fact that he hasn't had double-digit sacks since 2014. 
Every year since then, his numbers have declined. And last year, he had four, which matched the total that he had in 2012, which is the year the Colts traded him away. Think about that for a second. A bad football team traded this player away after he had four sacks. Yeah, well, they needed Calvin Shepard. How do you not? Nobody needs Kelvin Shepard. How do you not pull that trade off? Look, we need Kelvin Shepard. We'll give you this guy, Jerry Hughes. The book on Hughes is that he wins with speed and technique more than power. He's a smaller guy. He's only about 260 pounds, which is small for a defensive end in a 4-3. He thrives when his defensive tackle play is good enough to keep him from being double teamed or having a tight end slid towards him in protection. So maybe he'll rebound this season with some fresh bodies at the DT position, but even that's a dice roll to me. And then you look at what's behind him. Shaq Lawson, guy on the bubble, who was on the bubble from Jump Street in training camp. And if Murphy was healthy, I don't know that he doesn't lose his job altogether. Lawson was good against the run. I mean, that's been the only upside of his time here in Buffalo. He sets the edge well and doesn't get pushed around. But the one thing I see time and time again, it makes me want to bite things when I'm watching him play, is that when it comes time to rush the passer, the book on him coming out of college was that he had very few pass rushing moves and that he would have to develop in that sense. The coaching staff worked ridiculously with him on new techniques, and yet every time the ball gets snapped in a pass rushing situation, it's like all he knows how to do is bull rush, which at the NFL level... You might, you might have gotten sacks in college with that. Here, that's not going to work every time. There are Right tackles are bigger than you. Okay, That's just the way it is. Everybody here belongs to be here at the NFL level. You can't just bowl over subpar tackles on your way to bull rush sacks. And without the ability to, he just can't do it, Chris. And if that's the case, why is he still here? Simple. Trent Murphy. I don't know. I, I just don't understand it. And then you got Yarbrough. Solid story out of camp last year. I got the chance to interview him at training camp. And he, he struck me as a McDermott-type guy. Effort, heart, willing to do whatever you ask of him. And he's got a skill set that at one point people thought he might be as high as a third-round draft pick. But after watching him play, I mean, unless he's made huge strides in his game, which I didn't see watching the preseason he's nothing more than a stopgap player on the defensive line. I mean, that's not to insult the guy. That's just being honest. This group's performance could improve with improved defensive tackle play and maybe some creative play calling, but creative and exotic aren't words that I think I've ever heard used to describe Leslie Frazier, our defensive coordinator. I'm just concerned that we're, we're not going to be any better than we were last season, which isn't ideal considering the state of the next group on my list. Cornerback. Oh. Chris, this is where that second beer that I opened. Now I'm two-fisting. Now I'm two-fisting beers even, while podcasting. We haven't even played an actual game yet, and you're already double-fisting. And you're mad about our cornerbacks. It's because of, got to be because of Vontae Davis. On paper, Vontae Davis, this group was going to head into 2018 with Pro Bowl caliber starters on the outside and players with good athleticism and upside in the slot. 
watching this group play in the preseason, I have no hope. I have no reason for enthusiasm. In 2017, the Bills' opening week cornerback group had a highly drafted rookie starter and still had 45 games of starting experience between the players sharing the outside cornerback and slot duties. There's a possibility that if Vernon Davis really does lose his job to Philip Gaines, who was a free agent ac- another free agent acquisition, who also has a history of injuries, that number drops to 32, which is terrifying if you think we have another rookie thrown into the mix. The, the, the number of starts came down, the level of experience came down, the ceiling came down as far as overall talent, and you're throwing another rookie out there. That's a nightmare scenario in my mind, Chris. I mean, the presence of the safety depth helps a little bit. But I feel like overall, the cornerback group, significant regression is possible in 2018. Which would stink considering we don't even... Oh, we don't know that even with the dollars spent across the line, we're going to see an improved pass rush. Chris, I gotta, you got to say something because I, I can't just sit here and scream into two beers by myself. Well, I mean, I can see we can all hear why you're doing that. I mean, you did call Vontae Davis Vernon Davis two minutes ago. I did. You're already amped up. And you're, you're, you're on your ninth beer already. I thought I was doing good. I was up two to one on you, and now you're up nine to five, and... You're never going to look back and beer watch. Just <laughs> let this play out on Sunday. Don't, don't get too worked up. I understand not being worked up, Chris, but here's what I'll say. A wholesale regression of the entire defense could take place if this secondary can't find a way to be collectively. Safeties and cornerbacks as a, as a group can't find a way to be good. Good to above average. Well, this defense as a whole could regress, considering we're starting a rookie linebacker, yep. a second-year linebacker, and a Sam linebacker in Lorenzo Alexander, who's another year older and slower. Well, I would assume Alexander is going to be rotational at this point in his career. I mean, Chris, I guess what I'm trying to say is this isn't a team that's built to win a firefight, which is going to burn us. You know, it, it's absolutely going to come back and bite us in the ass in more than a few games. We saw it last year. When things get down, we have... Uh, yeah, the Saints game, when you left at like... I would assume you left that game after the first quarter. No, it was halftime. Yeah. It was halftime. And no, no, actually it wasn't. It was in the third quarter because I figured, well, we come out, we get the ball, we make a couple moves, we, we make something happen, and maybe we can... Oh, no. God, no. No. <laughs> Lord, no. I'm not watching any more of this. Uh, well, yeah, Sunday Sunday you did your fantasy draft, and Potter, <laughs> Potter was over there, and he did brief me on how we leave games at halftime because I am coming into my first season as a season ticket holder, and he, he, uh, he walked me through how we leave at halftime. So I'll be looking forward to that. Probably next, next week when we have the Chargers in town for our home opener. Do you understand that I leave because my rage knows no bounds, and I don't know how to express it properly with other people around innocent bystanders who don't need to be subjected to it. So I do the appropriate thing and I remove myself from the situation. Oh, 
And then there's the confusing parts of our roster makeup. And that brings me to the wide receiver group, which is something of an enigma when you look at it at first glance. A lot of Bills fans out there are questioning the decisions there, and I'm one of them. The biggest problem with the group heading into the offseason was that they were a squad that had no top-end speed. There was no separation. I mean, Chris, pro football focus beat us to death last season with a shovel over the fact that none of our wide receivers could get any kind of natural separation. So imagine my surprise to see that the only people who were left here on the current roster that had any kind of separation in the preseason was undrafted free agent rookie Robert Foster from Alabama, who, I'm sorry, but the only thing I remember him for was the guy who quit on a deep ball that could have been a touchdown because he alligator-armed it. Yeah, he made a couple. I I mean, I don't know how he made the roster. He alligator-armed a couple of balls in preseason. I mean, Chris, follow me here. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole for a second. You, the listeners, you're all coming with me. A lot of the most athletic members of this group in terms of speed were all cut. Brandon Riley, that's a confusing one for me. The guy found his way downfield, and I know he only had two catches because he had a rib injury. Both of his catches were big ones. He found his way downfield, made separation, caught the ball. I don't understand this. Kalen Clay, well, that's not so shocking. I mean, the guy, <laughs> he's got one NFL catch. Wasn't he more, he's more of a punt returner. Yeah, and he was here before, and we cut him. So, obviously, they brought him in just trying to throw shit at the wall and seeing if it stuck. And then Corey Coleman, who clearly just couldn't figure out the playbook and couldn't find a role for himself in what they wanted out of the receivers. If there's any kind of upshot to this, and I guess that's why I listed them as the confusing group. For as much as I want to be down on them, if there's an upshot, it's obvious when you look at their physical statistics lined up next to each other. You go to buffalobills.com, you look at the roster, you filter it for a position group, and you look at the size and weight. Okay, Outside of Jeremy Curley and Ray Ray McLeod, Two small guys, punt return style, kind of slot receivers. Every wide receiver that made this roster is over six foot two and 200 pounds. And whether it's in the pros or at the college level have proven they can run block well. So to me... Are we talking like Bob Woods run blocking? Yes. So to me... It seems like the GM prioritized ability in that department over the you know, those with less aptitude but for catching balls and getting out in space, but more athleticism and an ability to run block in hopes of finding a better chance. Chris, I mean, they traded flash plays and speed down the field for a consistent wide receiver core that can go out there and down after down maul the cornerback in front of them. That's what I'm seeing when I look at this group. And I think that it's kind of almost tipping your hand, but at this point no one was no one was you know worrying about the Bills passing attack coming into the season anyway. So what does it matter? So for any of you that, that thought you were going to see some dynamic passing attack out of our wide receiver group, at least. 
Get yourself a case or two of beer. Buckle your seatbelts. This season is going to be a long one. Because I think that this group was handpicked for their run blocking ability. And then, punter. You mean to tell me that you cut a a three-year starter off of the Bills roster, someone everyone was familiar with, they were familiar with his kicking style, they were familiar with what he brought to the table, and you replaced him not with an NFL veteran, not with John Ryan, who has familiarity with uh, Stephen Hauschka and with, you know, you replaced him with a Patriots kicker from college who didn't kick it all in the preseason? You're a f- Are you out of your mind? I, Chris, I don't even know what to say about this. I mean, uh, yeah, Saturday, Reed and I and Colton, I saw Colton on Saturday. We went to Wingfest, and I, said, and I knew we had cut John Ryan, and I told him, I was like, hey, man, congratulations. You know, we, we cut, you know, John Ryan. Job seems to be yours. And, you know, he was all excited, and he didn't, he didn't think that, uh, you know, any, any, that we would make a claim on somebody that didn't punt at all in the preseason. And there was, I, I forget who, it might have been Rodak. I saw Rodak tweet this out, a quote from like a, a, a Boston journalist, because they had asked about, this, I don't even know the guy's name, the guy that didn't punt in the preseason. And Belichick said, well, well you got to earn your spots on the field. <laughs> oh, my God. He didn't earn anything in New England to get on the field, to even show us one punt. So we're basing everything on this, what we saw from this guy from, in uh, where'd he go, New Mexico? I understand that Colton Schmidt might have at times left something to be desired in terms of a punter. But good Lord, this is the direction you chose to take it? If this guy sucks, I'm going to hang this one. I love Brandon Bean. I've made it clear that I have respect for the man and the moves that he's made to set this team up for long-term success. But Jesus, this is this is one of those things you're going to have to wear, man. This is a this is like Chris. This is like that pin that your mom puts on you and you don't want to wear it, but you have to cuz you're trying to make her happy. Guess what, Bean? I'm going to pin this to your jacket in my mind as, "Hey, you embarrassed us in front of everybody by signing this, whatever the hell you did here. I, I just don't get it. There was guys with more experience out there and available, and instead you went with a guy who has never punted. I'm sorry, I understand that there's a lot of Bills fans who are out there saying, hey, trust the process. Well, it could be a money Whoa. thing. It could be a money thing. We take on, I think it's 200000 in in uh, dead cap, and we saved $1.25 million. Oh, folks, I've been waiting so long to do this. It's here. Our week one preview, Buffalo Bills at Baltimore Ravens. The time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard. Place, M&T Bank Stadium from Baltimore, Maryland. The weather, set to be 70 degrees with a 40% chance of rain and a 15-mile-an-hour wind. And the line, Chris, you said that you saw it as high as the Buffalo Bills plus seven? Yeah, we're underdogs by seven. Wow. The injury report heading into week one for Buffalo. Defensive tackle Kyle Williams, questionable, but he has practiced on both Monday and Wednesday. Defensive end Trent Murphy, 
who we haven't seen all preseason. Questionable, but did practice Monday and Wednesday. An offensive tackle, Deion Dawkins, questionable with a hip injury. Baltimore. Cornerback Jimmy Smith, out. Suspension. Tight end Hayden Hurst has already been ruled out with a foot injury that could keep him out for a few weeks. And backup cornerback, depth guy, Maurice Cannaday, he's been on the roster for a while. He's questionable with an injury that I couldn't tell you what it is, and nor do I care. The fact is he may or may not play, which further weakens the secondary of the team we're playing against. And with that, folks, the Bills kick off on Sunday on the road against a familiar opponent that certainly has a bone to pick with us. (laughs) And yet it's hard to try to preview a team that you haven't gotten to lay eyes on in the regular season yet. But we've brought on a special guest to help us with that. We have Mr. Ken McCusick from the Russell Street Report on tonight. Ken, how are you doing? Life's good, Drew. How about you? (laughs) Not too bad. Guys, I did his show over the weekend. It was a lot of fun just talking kind of about the Buffalo Bills and what I foresee our makeup being this season, kind of as we head into the end, what I think of our team heading into this game against them. And he's kind of joined us to give us the other side of the coin. We will also have that uh, linked in the description of the show. Absolutely. So, Ken, first and foremost, the Russell Street Report. I saw when I was looking at the website that you guys are celebrating your 15th anniversary. How many years have you been working over there? So I've been writing since 2007 for, for RSR, so this will be my 12th season, and uh, really have done most of the analytic work on the site. There's another guy who does cap analysis, and there's another guy who really analyzes games in advance, does a piece called Battle Plans. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend Dev Panshaw's work, uh, Panshaw's work there as well. But uh, yeah, it, several good writers, and, and uh, it's mostly done for little or no wage, so uh, it's done by people who love to write about football. Fantastic. Now, how many years have you been a Baltimore Ravens fan? Well, I was a a season ticket holder in the very first year. And in fact, we put in money on the expansion and we were were fortunate enough to to get some very nice premium seats from the from the very beginning. So life has been good. And and, uh, I'm going to hopefully die in that stadium. Not anytime (laughs) soon, but, you know. uh, Oh, yeah. No, that's fantastic. You've been there since the beginning then. So then you can answer this question for me pretty easily. Best moment and worst moment as a fan of the Baltimore Ravens. Okay, so there's no doubt about the worst moment. I can start there. The 2006 uh, AFC Divisional game against the Colts. The Ravens went into it having won a bye uh, in the last couple of weeks of the season. They reversed the the two, three rankings. And the Chargers, who were the one seed and had been beaten by the Ravens already at home, went down. And the Ravens were set to have the AFC Championship game at home if they could just beat the Indianapolis Colts. And for a lot of reasons, we hate the Colts. But anyway, the Colts came into Baltimore. Manning had a terrible day. It was picked off a couple days. But the Ravens offense did nothing, and they lost 15-6. to So that was the worst game. I, I was supposed to meet people afterwards for work purposes, and I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to inflict myself upon them. So by far the worst ever. And Your favorite but, moment. Yeah, the two, two best ones. Uh, the first one lasted a long time in, in the 2000 game at Tennessee uh, in the playoff game. They won 24 to 10. And I think that was really the Super Bowl that year. That was the only team that could really stay on the field with the Ravens. And it was an incredible, exciting game. Ravens had five first downs the whole game, and they still won uh, on a blocked field goal, returned 90 yards for a touchdown, and subsequently a, a Ray Lewis interception returned for a touchdown. So for a long time, that was my, my best memory. And then we went to the Mile High Miracle, and that probably took over. It was a very close call. So those are the two. Uh, the Mile High Miracle. I remember being at a bar 
with my ex-girlfriend who's a Ravens fan. I remember that game because that was that, the first time Drew and I ever watched football together. I had that was wow. the first time I met Drew. And so because I'm, we because if people may or may not know this but my ex-wife and Drew's ex-girlfriend are best friends and that's how we met and that's how <laughs> that's how this is became a podcast. So it's funny though because I'm I have my back turned to these giant you know 70 80 inch projection TV screens. I'm getting a beer because I figured this game's over. There's no point in watching anything else. And all of a sudden, I hear a group, a small pocket of people just losing their minds while all of these Broncos fans are just stunned in the middle of this bar. And I turn around and I see the, I see Jacob, I think it was Jacoby Jones walking yep. into the end zone with that ball and just being a fan of good football and incredible moments. I lo- I came unglued. I was just celebrating, even though I didn't like the team. How do you not love a play like that? I mean, that's what football is, right there. Moments like that. Yeah, and then that game went into double overtime, of course. It's still only one of about five times that's ever happened, so very exciting. So, to start this whole thing off, I want to start on the offensive side of the ball with the Ravens. Now, in all of my years watching the Ravens play, you know, with Joe Flacco under center, they always seem to roll out some variation of a vertical passing attack. But in 2017, things really kind of ground to a halt. I mean... I, I can give him a pass because in terms of you know what you had on hand for personnel, things weren't great. I mean, your wide receiver group was the ghost of Jeremy Macklin, a mm-hmm. guy wearing a jersey that said Wallace, but he looked way too <laughs> slow to actually be Mike Wallace. And draft bust Brashad Perryman, who was here in Buffalo visiting with our team just, I think, yesterday. And even with our wide receiver situation, he still couldn't find a job. Yeah, that is a take my wife, please situation if ever there was one. <laughs> uh, so it, you, you've exactly characterized it. Matt Macklin, very disengaged last year, uh, did some stupid things on the field, uh, didn't complete routes, uh, stepped out of bounds before a very important field catch at Pittsburgh. Uh, a whole bunch of things went wrong. But anyway, the wide receiver core was a complete bust last year. Perriman, the, the first really awful draft pick in Ravens history. Matt Elam was also bad. But all of the others had before Elam and Perriman had all started for four years with the team, which is very hard to do in a, you know twenty plus years. That every first round draft pick has, has managed to be a starter for four years. No, I know, and so, I think that speaks to why your team has been so good for so long. I mean, Ozzie Newsom has really done a good job for you guys. Yeah, we, we uh, you know seeing him kind of hang up his spikes this year in terms of or hang up his phone, I guess this year uh, was really kind of special in draft day. I mean. So for Bills fans who maybe don't understand just how bad things got, as I'm sure Ken does, the numbers speak to it. You're talking about no wide receiver with more than 30 targets finished with a higher catch percentage than 56. And their wide receivers who did get more than 30 targets, they saw 237 combined. The running backs and tight ends on the team accounted for almost an even split in targets at 230 with just one player that didn't clear at least a 75% completion percentage. So by those numbers alone, it's not shocking to find out that you guys finished 29th in passing last year. That's right. You were a lot like us. You struggled to get the ball moving through the air, and it sounds an awful lot like the the most common targets, or or at least the ones that were you were most easily able to get the ball to were the ones closest to the line of scrimmage correct very much true so it was a lot of lot of uh tight ends watson i think was a leading receiver last year he certainly was uh, close to the top and he had not yet 
very little separation ability and no after-the-catch ability. Uh, the other guy who caught a lot of balls was, or caught a fair number of balls, was Buck Allen, and he's been a very low yards-per-touch guy since he's entered the league. So, you know, that's a couple of players you don't want to be depending upon offensively. The only guy, the only real star on the offense was Alex Collins. The offensive line, as far as a run-blocking line, was not bad. As a pass-blocking line, was not bad the, for most of the year. And the uh, Flacco really had a good game management year in the second half, where he threw nine interceptions and only two touchdown passes the last seven games, I think. Might have been six. But anyway, the, the um, uh, you know they, they needed more weapons. They committed in this draft to – Offense, and I think to the team's detriment, and you and I talked about this on the other pod, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at, the Ravens had the 16th pick. And two guys were on the board. I'd have been happy if they'd have taken either of them. And one was the guy you drafted with the pick we traded you, which was Edmonds. And the other was Derwin James, the safety that went to the Los Angeles Chargers on the next pick. So uh, Derwin James was one of the top five players, maybe six in the draft. Uh, you know, I would say, I have said, did said, I think Edmonds was one of the top 12 players in the draft. And with two guys like that, there should have been some ability to get a better return on their pick if they had to trade it. So that was my big objection to the draft this year. They did end up with 12 picks after multiple trade downs. I just don't feel like they got uh, they got tremendous value for the trades that they made. So even with those trades taken into account, there was a massive overhaul of your tight end and wide receiver group. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like they just took us. Th- th- there's taking a scalpel to your roster and saying, OK, I'm going to slice out a couple parts that I don't want. We're going to be meticulous about it. And then there's using an ice cream scoop, which is what you guys did. Major <laughs> surgery. No doubt about it. I mean, I mean, so, I mean, I'm just looking at this from a standpoint of you've got Michael Crabtree now, former Raider. Mm-hmm. Willie Sneed, who was a sneaky, sneaky good is how I would refer to him coming from the Saints who are going to line up on the outside and former Cardinals speedster, John Brown coming out of the slot. And then I, I think Brown will be on the outside. I think Steve really? is really the slot guy and he and Flacco do have a connection. So that, that'll be a, that'll be a positive thing. What, what's bad about the situation in general is it's a wide receiver free agent treadmill. And you, you're always buying into the decline of a career and, and at a top dollar amount. And I just, I hate that. So the, the, it's kind of a a catch-22 because the Ravens have proven the ability to find and develop talent at so many other positions. You know, certainly anywhere in the defensive backfield, they've been very good at linebacker, on the defensive line, and on some offensive line positions, I think they've also been good. But they're terrible developing wide receivers. And yet, wide receivers, of course, then are what they're always short on. And drafting them, they don't know what they're doing. And so if you use a high pick on on one, you're, you're, you're probably wasting it like they did with Perriman. Or, or Travis Taylor, or Mark Clayton was not really a tremendous value pick in the first round. No. But, and then if you if you don't use it, then you're perpetually having to find these wide receivers from somewhere else. And it's just, it's a very difficult thing, but it's something that can be solved outside of the cap. And I hope this is something ownership will step in on and say, look, I don't care who you have in this wide receiver scouting group. We need to change that. And, and I want a, another coach who can develop <laughs> receivers as well, not your guy, Harbaugh. Wow, man. That's brutal. I mean, I can't say much better for the Bills or our wide receiver position right now. So who knows? Guys, if anybody from the Bills brass is listening, maybe you need to take Ken's <laughs> word on this and maybe beat them to the punch and see who else is out there to try to develop wide receivers. Now, you said that you see that John Brown and Joe Flacco, there's already a rapport building there. 
Yeah, I think I think there is, and as far as a deep ball, Flacco, um, I think historically has not been that great a deep ball thrower, even though he did it a lot. Where he was good was with Torrey Smith, who had such bla- blazing speed and ability to run through contact that other um, uh, corners were constantly just flailing at him, trying to catch up, and he drew a lot of long pass interference penalties. In fact, in 2012 or 11, I forget which year it was, Flacco had the three longest pass interference penalties in the entire league, 50, 50, and 60 yards, and they were all long balls to Torrey. So it, it, that, it, as long as he's throwing a guy open with plenty of room to spare, no problem. It's when he throws a guy open and, and there's not plenty of room to spare that he can get himself into trouble and get some picks. So uh, hopefully, hopefully John Brown gives him some space to throw to and is the kind of separator that, that he appears to be. And he has looked good in camp. Well, and so I guess that's where I, I kind of want to dig into this thing, get into the nuts and bolts of what the Ravens are from a passing perspective. You know, we acknowledge the fact that Flacco has seemed to thrive over the years in a, in a vertical passing offense. So given the overhaul of the wide receiver group and the new faces you have there, has that scheme changed? And I guess one of the big questions I have is, do you see now that you have three legitimate receivers, do you see more multiple tight end sets or more split wide receiver sets that might force a defense to play more nickel and dime? Okay. Um, they do play a fair amount of two back sets. So once you go two back, it's a lot of play action uh, reliance that is at that point. And one of the Ravens bread and butter plays over the last few years has been zone block to the neck left naked boot to the right, and then try and find one of three targets at three different levels down the field. And usually on the right side of the field, because Flacco can't really move to the left and flow it throw at all. So that was very successful when you had Torrey Smith and, and you're completing a lot of the deep balls. I'm hopeful John Brown can bring that back. Wallace wasn't the guy for it last year. He, he just didn't have the speed to, to pull that off. So I, I'm hoping they have a little more talent at receiver this year. Um, the other thing is, because they run that play so often, they're not fooling many people anymore, particularly divisional opponents, where they're running it one and a half times per game, 25 times a season roughly. The guy on the edge of that defense on the right side needs to be fooled, and it just wasn't happening very often anymore. He's, he says, oh, zone block left, naked boot right. I'll go right after Joe. And uh, two two quickly pressured in most of those cases well and i mean that makes sense if you put something on tape too many times people will key on it i mean that's just that's i mean that's what happened with you know bills fans we can there's a contingent of us that complain still about tyrod taylor and don't believe he's as good as statistics and a lot of that shown through when we played the baltimore ravens two years ago in week one and the phrase you know we lost And the thing that we kept hearing off of every defensive lineman and every linebacker who was interviewed was that, well, we knew his tendencies, so we just made him throw the ball instead of being able to use his legs because he had put so much on tape that, hey, this is the these are the passes that I can throw. Most of them are on the run. When you put something that you're good at on tape too many times, defensive coordinators will find out how to take it away. Now, coming into Sunday's game. I'm really interested to see how we stack up against that. I think it's almost to our advantage to keep you guys in more large sets across the offensive line than it would be to break you guys out because our secondary really struggled this preseason. I mean, they really did. And then as far as the deep passing game, this is something I noticed looking over. I mean, I know most preseason statistics are, 
are pointless. But there's some that can kind of, you can point to, it's almost like you're playing Minesweeper and you're planning, you're seeing things kind of formulate and you plant flags and you try to figure out what the things look like from a, you know, a five to five to ten feet away. Your group finished, I think it was 13th overall in the NFL with 12 passes of more than 20 yards. That's big for you guys considering the struggles of the, you know, the downfield passing game in the last few years. Do you think that that's just more of a product of preseason football, or do you think that that's kind of indicative of where they're going to go on an for offensive play calling come week one against the Bills? Um, yeah, there's, there's one thing, one tendency that they, the Ravens have year over year is to throw a deep ball on the very first play of the season. So we might see that again, but uh, but I'd say that uh, in general, it probably favors the Bills if. Flacco is forced into any kind of mid-range passing game where he has to throw for nine or ten yards to get a first first down. It obviously favors him on third down to have nine or ten yards to go, no doubt about it. But if in general they take away the short passes and the, you know stuff the running backs and and obviously shadow the running backs very closely and and quickly are on them uh, and force him into the mid-ranges, that's that's a dangerous area. And Buffalo in particular, regardless of the preseason, I'd say that's the strength of the Buffalo Bills is secondary. I'd agree and with that. Lots of opportunities there to pick off passes. And, and the way I see this matchup as one where the first score has even more chips in the pot than it normally does. Because you have a lot of, a lot rides on the first score. If you, whoever win, scores first has a, has a significantly higher win probability than they do at the start of the game. But if, if you, in a game like this, where both teams have their own particular tendencies, I think Flacco can get himself into trouble with turnovers early. Not the ones that are forced automatically late. But he can get himself in, in a in a set of turnovers early that can uh, get himself in trouble and come in bunches. And just the same way, I think the Ravens have the ability to lean on an opponent um, defensively that gets behind. And so I think that the first score is going to mean a lot in this game, whereas it more than it would normally even. See, now that's a really good point that I, I guess I hadn't thought of considering the makeup of both rosters. Now, one of the things that I think is going to be big for Joe Flacco to be productive in the passing game is going to be the offensive line. So I've got some questions about that, too. Of course, thanks to fantasy football, everybody knows who Alex Collins is now. I mean, uh-huh. he, he's a household name. He saved one of my fantasy teams last season and got me into the playoffs. I mean, you talk about a guy who only started 12 games but averaged 4.6 a carry and 937 yards with six touchdowns overall. We know that he's going to be good this season. I mean, he showed in different, regardless of what's in front of him, he showed that he has some explosiveness coming out of the backfield. It's a shock to me that the Seahawks ever cut him in the first place. And corralling opposing running backs was one of the biggest things the Bills struggled with last year. I mean, some of the games that our opponents, I mean, you go back to that Saints game, you would have thought you were watching someone play a game of Madden not actually watching living, breathing athletes playing a football game. So that said, coming into week one, the Ravens aren't, you know, the Buffalo Bills coming into this season had some real turnover on the interior offensive line. The Ravens haven't been immune to that either. And I know that we got thrown into disarray. So I've got some questions about what's going on on your side of the line. First and foremost, huge loss, center Ryan Jensen leaving in free agency. What kind of an impact do you think that's going to have? Yeah, it'll have a big impact. Ryan Jensen uh, did a lot of things for the team well. Signed, obviously, for Tampa for four years, $42 million. Wish him the best. 
Love to watch him play. Uh, in my offensive line scoring system, he always did quite well, uh, better even than with PFF. Uh, what I will say most about Jensen is that he was a wonderful anchor for the AFC North. There's some, there's some very large defensive tackles and nose tackles on almost every division. But the in the AFC North, you really need to need to be able to have a guy who can set the anchor there in the middle and allow your power running game to go from left to right or right to left. And he did that very well. And he made a, a left guard who was fairly marginal in James Hurst be able to pull very effectively in that system. Now. This year they have Matt Skira there. I don't think he has nearly the good anchor. They do have other options behind him, but I think that their their pulling in particular is gonna they're gonna have more difficulty with that because of his inability to anchor the same way. And that's one of the things I fear against Buffalo right right away in week one is that they're gonna be able to uproot Matt Skira, disrupt the power run game, and Flacco will be forced to throw a lot more than he than he would normally. See now you hearing you say that almost mirrors what I said just twenty minutes ago about us losing Eric Wood and us having to kind of piecemeal our center situation together between a couple guys with you know varying skill sets. And then when you look across the rest of the line, you were talking about how he made people look better, and now that guy is starting in a brand new position on your line. I mean, whenever the interior of an offensive line gets shifted around, there's opportunities for dissonance. That's just, that's just the name of the game. Offensive line is about gelling and about continuity and understanding where the guys around you are. Last season, your group did really well, even with the fact that you missed the playoffs, which I'm <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm going to rub in at least once or twice. No biggie. Even the fact that you guys missed the playoffs, you guys were seventh in sacks allowed and 11th in yards rushing per game. You did well on both sides of the ball in terms of pass protection and in the run game. Well, it really speaks to the, the coaching staff, I think, because they really made lemonade out of lemons last year. It was a very weak set of players. Uh, you know, James Hurst is a failed tackle who moved into guard and played well. And we had uh, Matt Skura, uh really was not an anchoring guard at all, but they, they got everything they could out of his ability. Natural center moved there. I still don't think he has the anchor to play in the NFL, but uh, you know, last year they got a good year out of him at guard. They got the good year out of Ryan Jensen, who had never never done anything before. He'd barely played before uh, in the NFL. And they uh, they got a decent year out of Austin Howard by knowing what his limitations were. And, you know, an older guy came from the Raiders, absolutely immobile in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, pretty much anything that makes him useless on the backside of any run play. Really difficult getting into level two, always need to help on the edge. But they were able to work with that and still and still uh, uh, make things happen offensively. A lot of that was Collins, and a lot of that was the fact that by power running to the right side and with a fullback, they were able to get a lot of guys blocked up, and then Collins was able usually to bounce it to the edge. That's his preferred running style. I'm not saying it would be optimal. He should be able to find holes anywhere along that line as, as the team stretches, but he was really a guy who, who got to the edge to make big yardage. So then going into this season, I mean, especially against a team like the Buffalo Bills, what have you seen from that offensive line in the preseason? And if there are weaknesses, what would they be? Well, it's definitely in center. The, the rest of the starting line, I, th- I think, is very solid. Ronnie Stanley at left tackle is is very good. And then they have uh, – okay, they've got Skirt center we talked about. They've got Yonda mm-hmm. at right guard coming back, who's one of the best linemen in the league I love or was him. the last I time he played. I love him. He's an older player now, obviously. They, they drafted Orlando Brown Jr. in the third round. Orlando Brown had a unbelievably, historically bad combine 
in terms of he did 14 reps at 250, which for a lineman is just it's it's unbelievably bad. Um, but anyway, he uh, uh, he's their right tackle uh, apparently. Uh, their left <laughs> their left guard and and by the way looked has looked really good in the preseason at right tackle, much better than than anybody had expected. And then I, I, they got him in the third round when when originally the thought was that he would be the 16th overall pick, one of the really likely guys that they would get at that point. Um, but anyway, the, the, the left tackle uh, is Alex Lewis. Now, he's a two years ago, he played guard, and he played guard well, but he played tackle poorly. Last year, he lost the whole season to injury. And in two games ago in the preseason, so the next-to-last preseason game, he looked terrific. So I'm, I'm expecting him to be a good left guard and uh, and do the job for the Ravens. He's a he's a very big guy, uh, almost six six anyway, and uh, over three hundred. So not typical size for a guard, but I expect him to be one of the better linemen on the team. If someone was going to try to beat these guys in terms of their pass blocking ability or disrupt their running, what kind of skill sets would those defensive linemen have to have? Well, I think in the middle, it's just all about power and overpowering Skura. So and, and that's going to create, by the way, problems for both of the linemen next to him in terms of having to figure out how to double when necessary or how to combination block in the run game. I, I think there will be problems. Now, Marshall Yonda on one side is very good, but I would be looking for ways to isolate Lewis and Skura together. So cross the face of Skura towards Lewis like to create stunt or yeah, to create twists. Exactly. Twists and stunts that will that will open up either the shoulder of Skura or the shoulder of Lewis to to rush the passer. So if, if you had to find a place, that would be the, that would be the weakness. I think Stanley is solid on the, on the left side. I think Brown will be pretty good on the right side. Um, he's a, he's a, your typical right tackle that he doesn't have extraordinary mobility, but he has enough to go with terrific length that he, uh, he probably can get the job done as a pass blocker. All right. So switching sides of the football, the defensive preview, on this side of the ball, the Ravens still look like they're going to be the Ravens. And by that, I mean they're going to be able to rush the passer from all across the defensive line, be fairly stout against the rush because they've got a thick, heavy defensive line. I mean, you spoke to it. If you're going to play D-tackle or you're going to play nose guard in the AFC North, there's some big horses up there. Yeah. Clydesdales. And then athletic linebackers behind them. So there's still some facets about this that I'd like to pick your brain about. And it starts for me with the vulnerabilities and the strengths of the Ravens DBs. Now, obviously, you have a suspension you're dealing with of a guy who I assume would open the season as your number one corner. And you've got a depth corner in Canada who's dealing with an injury. I don't know how serious that is. But I guess the first thing I'd say is new defensive coordinator, Don Martindale. For defensive backs in this system... Has the positional responsibility changed at all? You know, I, I don't think really. Last year, the Ravens, for the first time in five years, were a, a dime team. We talked a little bit about this on our show, but they played 28.3% dime snaps, six defensive backs. They play a standard three and three, meaning three safeties, three corners, 41 dime, which is the four down de- defensive lineman, one Mike linebacker, who's the Mike linebacker in Baltimore has always called the signals since the very first year of the Ravens. Um, but I don't know how it is in Buffalo. I don't know who actually calls them for you guys. But uh, uh, in, the point I'm making is they, they, there's really nothing that I see is changing about that. Martindale has been trying to hide some of the 
positional things they've done by shutting down the dime at halftime in, in a couple of games recently, but I expect it to be the same personnel. In terms of how they go about rushing the quarterback out of that, that uh, scheme, it's another matter. Martindale is very fond of stunting, more so than anybody I've seen in the Ravens defensive coordinator since Marvin Lewis. Uh, in terms of the amount he blitzes, I'd say he's second most probably to Ryan, uh, and that's just from what we've seen in the preseason. Uh, so I, I count blitzes from at least a yard and a half off the line of scrimmage as being non-declared blitzers. And Pease had something like seven per game last year, and Ryan in 2006 had 19 per game. So it gives you an idea that you know there's three times as much blitzing going on. Uh, Pease was very much a passive defensive coordinator in terms of dialing up the amount of pressure that he thought would just boil the frog for the opposing quarterback. And he, he did well doing it. I can't can't complain about it, but... One of the things about the Ravens that made things difficult for them was they didn't have a good answer when the other team had four downs to move the football. They didn't have a pass rush that was really good enough to get home under those circumstances or to create enough turnover pressure under those circumstances. And this year, I think they're better suited to that with five guys who can rush from the interior and five outside rushers as well. I'm not going to lie. I heard you talk about stunts in the middle and and I'm not my stomach actually dropped. A little bit because I'm I'm horrified. <laughs> I mean, earlier in the show we talked about just what a tire fire I think this offensive line is. But having said that, maybe they'll surprise me. But just knowing that that's what I'm going to see on Sunday, it's it's making me feel a little ill over here. Now, Baltimore led the NFL last season with 34 total takeaways on defense, and 22 of them came through the air. I mean, it's you guys pick off a lot of passes, which is the product of a lot of pressure in quarterbacks' faces feeling like they have to get rid of the football. Does that seem to be kind of the soup du jour, what the Bills are going to see on Sunday? Is that still I mean, the formula? I think it's still the Ravens' strength is is their secondary, their ball skills now. They've got, they've got only one really weak ball skills player, and that's Jefferson who is more of a run-stopping safety. But but the rest of them, including the linebackers, I think are good ball skills players. Uh, Peanut Owasso is also not a ball skills guy. Uh, you know, Suggs is uh, one of the smartest football minds you'll ever see in terms of his ability to figure out what's going on on a field. Uh, you know, it's just – it's. He's this, this jovial clown on the practice field. He's the most fun guy to be around camp with, is to, is to see him – anywhere in the field and you can hear him anywhere and he comes out he makes an entrance and he jumps in this golf cart and he drives over to the place where he's going to stand on the sideline and now the big thing is you get to ride with Suggs and now that that honor belongs to Brandon Williams on the on the defensive line so you know the, the two of them are clowning it up and and Suggs says something legitimately hilarious every single practice he'll either crawl up behind a kicker and try and distract him which he did once and you know, he's always saying something to, to put down the opponent in some really difficult way. And uh, it's, it's very fun. So the, the last question before we move on from the secondary, because this is a wrinkle that I find interesting about the Bills' current makeup. Looking over what our roster looks like now, I see that they opted to get rid of almost all of the speed options that we had. I mean, the thing that most maligned our team was that we didn't have fast receivers with, with, you know, we didn't have any John Browns. We didn't have any deep speed. We didn't have guys who could get natural separation. And this, we had a handful of fast guys that the team, 
basically tossed aside and instead went with a group of wide receivers who are all over six foot two. They're all over 200 pounds outside of a few depth guys. I guess the question is, in terms of run stopping, this D, I mean, you talked about how opportunistic they are and how many DBs you guys like to play with. How are they in terms of their run stopping because, and, and against matching up with a massive group of wide receivers? Because if that's the case, running out of a dime situation would almost seem to lead, lean the advantage towards the Bills in terms of we just have big wide receivers. And I almost feel like that's the reason they kept them all. Okay, let's be clear about a couple things. First of all, the dime is the basic pass defense, so they'd only have it on third and four or five or okay. more. So you take your chances running on third and four or five. Maybe you make it, maybe you don't against any any heft. But but what, I'm, what I would say is if you're running on first down against the Ravens, you're better off forcing them into nickel to do it because put three receivers on the field because their behemoths on the inside will just utterly control the line of scrimmage otherwise. Michael Pierce is the guy who I think you'll see does the most damage if you're offensive interior is really as weak as you think it is uh he's he's the nose tackle and he's had a big preseason uh brandon williams is also very physical on the inside a big guy they've given a lot of money to and uh, is also a terrific run stopper the ravens for their first year in their history gave up as much as four yards per carry last year 4.1 they'd never previously in 20 whatever years 21 years given up four yards a carry so uh, you know, it's, it's an area where they want to get back. Um, the, the weakness is at, at linebacker, frankly, against the run. So if you can get two defensive linemen on the field, you can get one outside linebacker of questionable containment ability. You're going to have Suggs on the field on the other side, who is one of the best. But then you have two linebackers of questionable run-stopping ability. I think you have a chance to, to run on the Ravens now. What does Suggs have left in the tank? I mean, you're talking about a guy who, I mean, T-Sizzle. He's been great. I mean, he's no Ray Lewis, but he's he's an upper echelon player for his career as far yeah, as linebackers go. What does yeah. he have now this late in his career left in the tank that you're I mean, because veteran guys like him, what you see is they wear down as the season goes on. But when they come out of the gate and they make it healthy out of a training camp, those guys come out like like they're shot out of a cannon. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a fair assessment. I think we've seen some of that from Suggs in recent years. There's been some criticism locally that he does his best pass rushing against some weaker opponents. Honestly, he do, he does so much more than being a pass rusher that's useful to the team. He's diagnosed as a screen like no one. He's the best run defender the Ravens have ever had on the edge. Uh, you know, he he exactly knows how to position his body and how to how to how to blow up that side of the run and uh, he very rarely takes himself out of the play uh, when he's rushing the passer uh, prematurely. So in terms of what he has in the tank as a pass rusher left, I'd have a very hard telling time telling you. I mean, he's got one year left on this contract. I think he'll play that. Unfortunately, I think this is probably his last year as a Raven. Some part of it, part of me hopes that he'll retire a Raven and that'll be, that'll be it. Uh, another part of me says, you know, why not continue on and, and, and get some of the cumulative statistics? I'd, I'd love to see him with the Ravens get to the playoffs, get the one more sack he needs to have the all-time record for sacks in the postseason. He's one behind Willie McGinnis right now. Wow. But, uh, yeah. But, uh, but it's, uh, you know, he's going to make the Hall of Fame. He, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he'll be a first ballot Hall of Famer, but that would be the remaining question is whether or not he'll, he'll, uh, he'll go on the first ballot. And, 
you know, if he if he plays again in 2020, he'll have done. Uh, sorry, in 2019, he'll have played the same number of years as Ray did, 17. Wow, it's incredible to think that you guys. Again, credit to Ozzie Newsom and also your coaching staff that you guys found these these gems, the, the Ed Reeds, the Ray Lewises, the Terrell Suggs of the world, and not just coached them up but retained them and made them mm-hmm. the cornerstones that you've built this powerhouse off of. So then the last thing I want to ask you about before we let you go, something you said to me during my appearance on your show. The Bills opted to head into 2018 with four tight ends, all of them with varying skill sets in terms of pass catching and run blocking. Considering that, I'm assuming that they have a plan in place for all of these players because it's very atypical of a football franchise to keep that many tight ends on the roster. How are the Ravens linebackers and safeties in terms of covering tight ends and running backs out in coverage? Well, we're going to see in terms of usage one particular element. But my basic thing, my basic comment to you would be the Bills would be in good shape and and would be well advised to try and take advantage of the middle of the field as much as they possibly can. Uh, Weddle is a good back end guy for bracket coverage. He really needs to stay there. He's not a good run support guy anymore in his career. And as they tried to have versatile safeties who each could play up and back, blah, 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 that didn't work out last year. And it was only when they fixed their usage that they got the best out of both Jefferson and Weddle. Jefferson is an upfront guy who supports the run extremely well, and he is the best hope to cover a tight end in man in your face coverage. So he's he's not too small for the job. He's he's proven in his time at Arizona covering bigger tight ends that he's a he's a guy you can depend on. The Ravens have not used him that way. Uh, when they have, you know, they, they're more likely to play these under these zone coverages and tight ends, and particularly some really unknown names have burned the Ravens for big games in recent years because nobody really wants to throw on the corners. You know, whether it's Humphrey or or Smith, they're dangerous guys in terms of intercepting the ball. They didn't really want to throw against the safeties in the Reed era, certainly, but but Weddle has been a big pick guy with 10 picks the last two years, and they, they don't really want to throw deep on him there. So the, the easiest, the weakest point of the whole team is, is can you get the middle of the field with those two linebackers, Mosley and uh, and Awasu, or can you get uh, uh, Jefferson isolated in a way where he's not in man coverage? And I think in those situations, there's a there's a good chance to beat the Ravens, and and that's where the Bills uh, a lot. I think that's where the Bills can take advantage of the Ravens. Fantastic. See, I, that's the stuff. Can I love how much you know about the game of football and how well you know your team? What is your prediction for Sunday's game? You know, when we were, you were on my show, I told you that the implied odds on this game were 72.6% for the Ravens to win. And that let, goes out to online and looks at what are the best odds available on each team. And then you factor out the juice, which is pretty low on this game, by the way. It's only about 1.3% mm-hmm. uh, when you take that out. And, it, and you get to 72.6% chance for the Ravens to win. And that means 274 for the Bills. I, I, I think it's about right. Uh, you know, I don't think you know as much as we think we do about these teams in the first week of the season. No. I think that's the biggest thing. I think we don't know how an injury is going to affect one team or the other and how serious it could be in week one. Uh, so I think it's about right. Where, where are you on this again? I Well, I told you that when you said that there was a 70% chance the Ravens win, I told you I thought that was too low. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, 
If you had to try to guess what the f- you know where where what this game is going to be like on Sunday, go ahead and give me your pick. Oh, I opened the show uh, tonight with mentioning a couple of years ago when we had Chan Gailey as head coach. Uh, the Jets just trolled <laughs> us for fifty three. I mean, I don't think the Ravens will go that high, but I honestly don't see this being a very close game. I would I I would put it somewhere in the neighborhood of like. Ravens will win 27 to 10. Because I'm the guy who I, 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 I can't be the only person who doesn't vote for the Bills. I don't think they're going to win, but I don't think they're going to lose as big as everyone's intending. I mean, we talked about it at the onset of this. The spread for this is plus seven. The Bills plus seven. We're getting a full touchdown and an extra point. I expect it to be a closer game than that. I ultimately think it comes down to something in the neighborhood of, I'm going to say 24, 24 to 17, I'm going to call it. Because I think that on the ground and in space, if they kept these tight ends, they have to know how they're going to utilize them. So you think the Bills are uh, going to cover? I think the Bills are going to cover. So that's our Seagram's bet. Oh, Jesus. To open, open the season. <laughs> I think we're going to get trounced. Ken, for those of you may not know, the loser of these bets has to chug a Seagram's wine cooler. It's, oh, okay. a, it's not only <laughs> embarrassing, but also might get you that much closer to diabetes, which is never is good that, for is anybody. Is that like chugging a Zima or something? Kind, kind of. Kind of essentially. But with a, with a touch of alcohol <laughs> and, a, and, a lot more, and a lot more color. And I mean, just a lot more shame yeah, that yeah. goes along with it. I mean, you can't. Why, why would I? Why would I bet Drew like money? I don't want your money. I want to watch you drink a Seagram's because you think we're going to cover uh, seven. Ken, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I mean, the information that you brought is incredible. And tell our listeners where they can find your work. Oh, great! Well, follow me on Twitter if you like at Film Study Ravens. You can look for my stuff on Russell Street Report. I do a podcast called Film Study. Ken McCusick at Film Study Ravens on Twitter. You were on his show on Sunday. He was just on with us. Dude is a knows so much about football. He's a goldmine of information. I I I couldn't have been happier. Oh, I couldn't have asked for a better guest for this. And that brings us to our weekly keys to victory. Stride, 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 stride. Execute. First and foremost, turnovers are going to be costly. As I stated. The Ravens finished last season with the NFL's best turnover differential. They were a plus 17. This is a defense that you can't... I mean, that's how they won a lot of their games. I mean, anybody who follows the AFC East watched that... that I think it was a Monday Night Football game against the Ravens where the Dolphins turned the ball over four or five times, two of them for touchdowns. It was like a 40 to nothing just... You asking me to watch the Dolphins on a Monday night? I watch them just because I think it's common. I would rather watch HGTV and then a friggin' <laughs> Dolphins game. Turnovers, this is an opportunistic defense, and if you give them those chances, it's good, they're going to capitalize on them. So having said that, we're going to have to try to avoid those out routes that seem to plague Peterman in terms of his throwing. Or if you're going to throw them, pick your spots and make sure you don't telegraph them which is one of the downsides. When you have a quarterback like Peterman, which I've been harping on for weeks through the preseason, 
who is a one or two read guy, and most of his throws are based on timing routes. A good defensive coordinator will eat a guy like that alive if they figure out his tells and they kind of figure out where he's going with the football in the middle of a game. You can bet your ass there's going to be turnovers. For as strong as his arm has gotten, he still can't throw an out. Stay away from the boundaries and don't turn the ball over. Number two, the pressure must develop in order to slow down that vertical passing attack. Kyle and Trent being healthy and practicing this week is huge for us. But if they suit up, the production has to be there. If we can't put some heat with just four or five guys rushing the passer and we over, have to overcommit in order to make Joe Flacco uncomfortable, they are going to eat us alive. Last season, you heard me talk about it, how adept they were at dumping the ball off to running backs and tight ends. This is something Flacco's used to. He will do it if there's pressure in his face because he's a veteran. And at the same time, if you so if you overcommit, you're going to get burned. And if you undercommit and our starters don't win, it's going to look like Andy Dalton in that preseason game all over again because he's going to throw down the field as he is very much want to do. I mean, that the pressure is going to have to be there, Chris. And then creative usage of the tight ends. Now, you heard Ken talk about it. And, and when I did my interview with him over at his uh, podcast over at Film Study Ravens, he mentioned the fact that linebacker Owosu is particularly bad in coverage in terms of tight ends and running backs. This is something we're going to have to try to exploit. Because if we can't, our wide receivers aren't getting separation. I don't care if they are on their second and third cornerback. And at the same time, do we have a quarterback, a quarterback who can get them the ball for yards after the catch? I mean, it's just... Uh, I mean, the tight ends are going to become paramount. These four tight ends are going to have to be instrumental in not only working in the running attack, but in, you know, I expect to see a lot of two tight end sets, maybe even three tight end sets, where you split some guys out, you leave a guy in the block, and you split, spread different guys out in passing combinations. Let them work on the linebackers who are clearly giving up a size and a size advantage to these big guys that you can just pitch and catch with. Quick release throws, timing throws. You do that, and we have a shot at winning this football game, Chris. That's my opinion. Yeah, now we got a Seagram's bet that you heard a little bit earlier on the spread. Drew, you already look like you're in uh, you're in midseason form over here. We got a moose head label that looks partially uh, chewed. You have half a beer in your hand and a full beer opened already. You've already cleared ten beers for the night, and we haven't we haven't recorded an in season podcast on a Wednesday probably since our our first season. Uh, the game is Sunday at one on CBS. It's going to be only shown in the Baltimore and basically all over New York State. Five hundred six sports dot com because I'm such a nerd and I care about who's calling what game and what game is getting shown in my. Local area, we get Kevin Harlan and Rich Gannon. Kevin Harlan, <laughs> Kevin Harlan. Kevin Harlan is mostly known for he does Monday nights on radio, yep. and he's known for doing the going viral with his uh, radio calls of people streaking 
because Monday Night Football is so bad. Go to Deadspin and just look for Kevin Harlan streakers. It'll be hilarious. Guys, thank you so much for showing up tonight for the first podcast of the 2018 season. I want to say a big thank you to Ken. You can follow him on Twitter, at Film Study Ravens. And you can hear me on his podcast. We're going to put a link to it in the show's description. Follow him over at RussellStreetReport.com. They're celebrating 15 years of in-depth Ravens coverage. I don't even know the internet was around; has been around for that long. <laughs> at Rockpile Report on Twitter, RockpileReport716 at gmail.com. And make sure that if you're in the South Buffalo, Sloan, West Seneca area, you're ordering your food from Wise Guys Pizza Doc, you know, Wise Guys Pizzeria. They are the official pizzeria of the the Rockpile Report podcast, and you can find them at wiseguysbuffalo.com. Chris, we gotta go. Cheers, I'm Drew Gear. Cheers to the 2018 season. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger, and this has been the Rockpile Report.